All right, everybody. It is Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm back. It's Mo Schwinnino. <laughs> and I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. He's alive! <laughs> Jill, it was a rough 36 hours. I had a uh, stomach situation, but I am glad to be back here. I was very happy to get a, a text from Alex, your wife, and you this morning with a, a picture and Alex saying, we survived, he's okay, doing a lot better. <laughs> I was actually, I was a little worried because for you to miss the podcast, I feel like there had to be a serious, serious problem. Oh, I was like in fetal position. <laughs> it was not a good situation, Jill. And then we sent you the uh, sign of life this morning with a thumbs up. So I am glad to be back though. You may hear it in my voice. I'm still on a, a liquid diet for another day. We're on the verge of TMI, Mosh, so I'm going to get to the headlines, okay? <laughs> <laughs> a show of unity against the United States, a major meeting between the Chinese and Russian leaders in Moscow. Don't say menstruation. Florida looking at a ban on classroom sex ed, including talk about periods before sixth grade. Miami's declared a state of emergency after two deadly shootings during spring break. We'll also tell you about President Biden's first ever veto. Today could be indictment day for former President Trump. What New York City is doing to prep. The French may no longer be able to retire at age 62. And the protests are on after some developments Monday. Back here at home, the Murdochs are back in the news. This time it's the oldest son, Buster, speaking out about rumors that he's connected to a 2015 death. Results from the world's happiest country survey are in, and a perennial winner is back in the top spot. Notably, the United States has moved up in the rankings a bit, and Moshe has on this day in history. Jill, we have some in sync history for you today, as well as the first ever tweet. We've got range, Moshe. We've got range. <laughs> Okay, let's start with this major meeting between the Chinese and Russian leaders in Moscow. Chinese leader Xi Jinping arrived in Russia on Monday for a three-day state visit. The leaders called each other dear friends. It's Xi's first visit to Russia since Putin invaded Ukraine. The two major powers have described Xi's three-day trip as an opportunity to deepen their so-called no-limits friendship. China looks to Russia as a source of oil and gas for its energy-hungry economy, and as a partner in standing up to what both see as U.S. domination of global affairs. China says it's neutral when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, last month releasing a 12-point plan to settle the crisis, although the plan effectively backs Russia's ability to maintain its territorial gains. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the world should not be fooled by any tactical move by Russia, supported by China or any other country, to freeze the war on its own terms. Yeah, these are meetings that are closely being watched uh, here in the U.S., in Europe, and around the world. Ukraine and Western allies say that any China-backed truce would just give Putin time to reinforce ahead of a planned Ukrainian counteroffensive. U.S. officials also maintain that China is still considering giving weapons to Russia for use in Ukraine. Right now, the Chinese deny that. And the U.S. says that Xi's call for a ceasefire would amount to an effort to strengthen Putin's battlefield position. John Kirby over at the White House says a ceasefire would effectively be the ratification of the Russian conquest. It would, in effect, recognize Russia's gains and allow Russian troops to continue to occupy Ukraine. While some Chinese officials do see Putin's war there as destabilizing, they recognize a greater priority in foreign policy, the need to support Russia so the two nations can present a united front against their perceived adversary, 
the U.S. So the old adage in foreign policy, Jill, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what you see playing out here in Moscow. It was meant as a powerful message to the West that the effort to isolate Russia has fallen short and China will do its own thing. This meeting, of course, comes just a few days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin late last week over his involvement in the deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia. Now, the International Criminal Court does not have a police force, so an arrest of Putin is extremely unlikely given the current circumstances. Incidentally, since I got this question on Instagram, Jill, Russia, Ukraine, China, and the U.S. are all not in the International Criminal Court. Some people were surprised by the fact that the U.S. is not in the ICC, the International Criminal Court. It turns out, if you dig into the history here, that President Clinton at the time signed us up for it, but then President Bush, George W. Bush, was afraid of the possibility of American soldiers being targeted by the international community during the war on terror, so he pulled the U.S. out of it. That was a sentiment shared by President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden who are concerned about U.S. soldiers, U.S. officials being targeted by the ICC. So while you might not be surprised that Russia or China is not in the ICC, turns out the U.S. is also not in it either. You just sign up. I feel like it's like gymnastics or <laughs> or dance <laughs> for my daughter. Yeah, I'm going to sign her up. That's how it works. Well, there are treaties and legislation, et cetera, when you sign up to like an international body like this, Jill. But effectively, if you don't want to get involved, you don't have to get involved. Okay, now to a controversial new bill under consideration here in the United States. Florida lawmakers are considering a draft law to strengthen state control over sex education that its sponsor says would ban any instruction in schools about menstrual cycles before the sixth grade. The proposal comes as Florida's Republican-dominated legislature, backed by Governor Ron DeSantis, has already passed a raft of laws limiting discussion in schools about gender and sexuality and reducing the emphasis on diversity in public schools. This latest proposal from Republican state legislator Stan McLean would allow instruction in AIDS, STDs, health education, and menstrual cycles only in grades 6 through 12, generally meaning for children aged 12 to 18. Girls typically have their first periods between the ages of 10 and 15, but some do so as young as nine. The bill would require that school materials are approved by the Florida Department of Ed and would establish objection forms to the school community that would include contact information for the school district leaders. The Republican-backed legislation cleared the House Education Quality Subcommittee. That happened last week by a 13 to 5 vote mainly along party lines. So this bill just got out of committee in the House side there in Tallahassee and now heads to the floor of the state House. If it passes that chamber, it would then need to go to the state Senate before going to Governor DeSantis. McLean, the original sponsor of this bill, clarified that he doesn't think it's appropriate to have formal education about menstrual cycles and all these other items until the sixth grade, but said it would not be the intent of the bill to punish girls if they came to teachers with questions about their cycle. He has said that he would be amenable to amendments if they were to come up. It's unclear whether any amendments will be made to the bill that would allow for young girls to talk about their periods in school. For now, Democrats in Florida are focused on criticizing the bill for not effectively preparing children to eventually become informed adults. One particularly outspoken state rep, a Democrat named Ashley Gantz, said the following. Quote, I thought it's pretty remarkable that the beginning of a little girl's menstrual cycle was not contemplated as they drafted this bill. I hope that we all understand that we are taking away the ability for our children to be critical thinkers by telling them we want to protect their innocence. They're going to be adults one day, 
and they need to be informed adults. Moshe, I know you posted about this on the Instagram account and were flooded with responses. So what are you hearing? Yeah, it's been hundreds of messages, mainly from women. Incidentally, some who say they like DeSantis and are conservative, but feel that this bill goes too far. They note that in many cases, kids grow up with parents who don't talk about these things. And while the basis of this bill is that these types of issues should be discussed at home, many of them have been telling their stories about how they actually had to turn to teachers in school because they weren't learning these things in time. And it does come, as you noted, Jill, that girls are getting their periods earlier and earlier. You know, Some were noting that they've seen seven or eight-year-olds getting their periods The overall message so far overwhelmingly has been one of concern. One message read, quote, what a disservice to those poor girls who, for whatever reason, may not be taught about their menstrual cycle at home. I cannot imagine the embarrassment and horror if that happened to a child at school with no understanding of what's going on with their body. The education should come earlier as girls are starting younger and younger, not wait longer. Another woman writes, this opens the doors for misinformation and women's health is already confusing and difficult enough to navigate. Research holds out that the less adolescents know about their bodies, the worse the health outcomes are. And one other woman writes, half of the entire world's population menstruates. Let's normalize talking about it. Jill, I also heard from a handful of conservatives uh, on the account who backed this bill, saying all this education should be up to parents. Critics, of course, push back on that argument, saying, again, that assumes you have a female in the household willing to talk about this subject with children. And that was one of the stories that came up over and over again, is that many people, their experience was they weren't getting health education at a young enough age. I'm trying to think back to the way that this was all introduced to me. And I believe that after fifth grade, uh, when we were going from elementary school to middle school, the girls and their moms went to the elementary school and watched a movie about somebody who got their period. I'm pretty sure that that's how it happened. Um, And it was a good springboard because you're introduced to this concept that's really foreign to you. And then I think I went home and asked my mom a bunch of questions and and at least had some familiarity with what was going to eventually happen. Yeah, I was trying to recall the same thing. I remember the first questions being asked openly in class in fourth grade and then having sex ed uh, and health education in fifth grade, where we start to learn about these matters. Again, this was the Chicago suburbs in the early 90s in a public school, but obviously this is managed differently in various states and various districts, private, public, etc. You can imagine here, Jill, that there will likely be an amendment here because of how much attention this particular issue when it comes to talking about periods before sixth grade is getting right now. All right, we have a lot more coming up in the podcast, including why Miami has declared a state of emergency. But let's get to a couple of our sponsors this week. I want to start with Bull and Branch Sheets. We talk a lot on this podcast about sleep studies, the importance of getting your eight hours every night. And with that in mind, we're so happy to be partnering with a brand that helps you do that, Bull and Branch Sheets. That is B-O-L-L and Branch. We got their sheets in the fall, and I can assure you, you will wake up feeling rested and refreshed. With their very soft sheets, they're made with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash. Already, millions of Americans have bought Bull & Branch sheets. Best of all, right now, Bull & Branch is offering a special deal to the Mo News community. You can get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bullandbranch.com. Best of all, right now, Bull & Branch is giving you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. Again, the deal is 15% off your first order over at Bull and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code MONEWS. 
Natto Athletic Greens. I've been taking their AG1 supplement in the mornings. The Athletic Greens AG1 powder. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. Easy, quick, and lets you get on with your day. Knowing that you've gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals, it also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription or try it one time for just a month. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read from CBS News. Miami Beach enacts spring break curfew after two fatal shootings. Officials in the city declared a state of emergency and imposed a curfew beginning Sunday night during spring break. There have been two deadly shootings and police have had a lot of trouble controlling crowds. That first curfew ended Monday night, but officials will likely enact another one next weekend from Thursday through next Monday, March 27th. The curfew mainly affects South Beach. The mayor saying, quote, we don't ask for spring break in our city. We don't want spring break in our city. It is too rowdy. It's too much disorder and it is too difficult to police. Now, in one of the shootings, a male victim was killed and another seriously injured, sending crowds scrambling from restaurants and clubs in fear as they were able to hear gunshots ringing out. The mayor being pretty blunt there, Jill, though I know Miami Beach has been a spring break location for a few decades now, so they're just trying to manage this. This is the third straight year now they've declared a state of emergency during spring break due to violence. Under the curfew, people must leave businesses before midnight, although hotels can operate later only in service to their guests. The city said restaurants can stay open only for delivery, and the curfew won't apply to residents people going to and from work, as well as emergency services. Some roads will be closed off and arriving hotel guests may have to show proof of their reservations to get in. As I noted, it's been a couple years of this now. Last year, the city imposed a midnight curfew following two shootings on Ocean Drive. And the year before that, there were about a thousand arrests and dozens of guns confiscated during a very rowdy spring break. Okay, today could be indictment day for former President Trump. This from CNBC. The eyes of the U.S. political and legal worlds are focused on New York City, where a grand jury is resuming proceedings in a criminal investigation of former President Trump. He, meanwhile, predicted over the weekend that he could be arrested today, but the timing is still up in the air. In the meantime, New York police began installing barriers Monday morning around the Manhattan court complex where Trump is expected to be arrested as the city braces for potential protests. The grand jury is focused on hush money payments made to porn star Stormy Daniels shortly before Election Day in the 2016 presidential campaign. Trump's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, has admitted to giving Daniels $130,000 to keep her quiet about her claims of having sex with Trump on one occasion years before the election. Earlier in 2016, Cohen also arranged for former Playboy model Karen McDougal another woman with sexual accusations about Trump, to be paid $150,000 by the publisher of the National Enquirer to not tell her story. Cohen says both were at the direction of the former president and has audio tapes to back it up. The investigation by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is eyeing how Trump's company, the Trump Organization, 
classified the payment and reimbursement to Cohen as legal expenses. We should note Trump continues to deny having sex with either woman and says that the investigations are politically motivated. I mentioned this yesterday in the podcast, but it is not actually illegal to pay somebody not to talk. (laughs) So that wasn't actually what the problem is. The hush money wasn't the problem. It was that they allegedly lied with how it was classified. And that was potentially as well in violation of campaign laws. Right. It appears what they're going after him on is a violation of New York state law in terms of how he classified the expense and how that was used to basically circumvent federal election law here. And so there are legal analysts, even liberal legal analysts, who are a bit skeptical here that Bragg is bringing forth these charges. Of course, Jill, it's still too early to say we haven't seen the official indictment, so we don't know if there's more to the story here. But this is what we've learned so far based on the leaks. In the meantime, Trump's allies are preparing a wave of reaction if and when the DA brings an indictment against him. The American First Policy Institute That's a dark money nonprofit run by Trump administration alumni that pushes his policies, is prepping a response once an indictment is announced. There are a number of people in the Trump circle that actually think this could benefit him in the Republican race for president. Trump, over on his social media account, over at Truth Social, shared a video Monday tearing into the Democratic Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg. In the video, a narrator hurls accusations at Bragg, including that his lax crime policies have turned New York City into a crime-ridden, quote, hellscape. The video includes visuals of police lights, yellow crime scene tape, and at least one chalk outline of a body. Within Republican political circles, Trump is mostly getting support right now, including from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who says this is all political on the part of the Manhattan DA. But interestingly, McCarthy said in the last couple of days that people should not protest or hit the streets on behalf of Trump. He also tried to explain away the Trump statement over the weekend that people should protest. McCarthy saying Trump wasn't actually calling for people to protest, even though he wrote protest. He says that Trump meant people should get educated on the subject. So there's that. We also heard from Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida and likely Trump rival for president, who took turns in a statement on Monday, Jill, interestingly, both criticizing the DA, but also taking not so subtle shots at Trump by mentioning the hush money payment to a porn star. Take a listen to how DeSantis navigated this. I don't know what goes into paying hush money to a porn star to to secure silence over some type of alleged affair. I just I can't speak to that. But what I can speak to is that if you have a prosecutor who is ignoring crimes happening every single day in his jurisdiction and he chooses to go back many, many years ago uh, to try to use something about porn star hush money payments, You know, that's an example of pursuing a political agenda and weaponizing the office. So, Jill, you heard the laughter there in the room when he was asked by a reporter about it and goes out of his way to be like, yo, I can't talk about hush money payments to porn stars. But what I can talk about is this Democratic DA, Soros back, etc. So clearly trying to feed everybody here, the right wing base that wants their criticism of the DA, but also the media here, which is replaying here his not so subtle mentions of Trump. But he said it with a totally straight face, as if it was a totally normal thing to be saying, a hush money payments to a porn star. Right. We know as politicians, they can control, especially a politician as savvy as Ron DeSantis, they can control what comes out of their mouth. They can say no comment. They can repeat things back. They'll go in any direction they want to. Clearly, DeSantis here wanted to repeat the word porn star and hush money several times in addition to criticizing the DA. 
Okay, back to the preps. The Secret Service is now coordinating security plans with the NYPD in the event that the former president is indicted and arraigned in an open courtroom in Manhattan, according to sources. The two agencies had a call Monday to discuss logistics, including court security and how Trump would potentially surrender for booking and processing. White-collar criminal defendants in New York are typically allowed to negotiate a surrender. New York City Mayor Eric Adams said that he was confident the city is prepared for any protests related to a potential indictment of the former president. Yeah, it's unclear how many people will actually gather in person here. There's a lot of talk online in various right-wing forums that this is just a stunt by the feds to arrest uh, more Trump supporters. So many people post-January 6th are very skeptical about getting out there and protesting. Meanwhile, though, an intelligence bulletin was issued by the Washington, D.C. Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, and they say they have been picking up on some threats online and that some extremists do consider the indictment of Trump a, quote, line in the sand. So that bears watching. And so federal, local and state law enforcement right now are closely watching what unfolds here. And really quickly, Mosh, because it's looking with all of the prep that's being done for protests that that it's not if, but when former President Trump is indicted, what happens then? So that means that the grand jury in New York has officially filed charges uh, against the former president. As you mentioned, white collar criminals typically allowed to negotiate a surrender. It's clear now, based on his attorneys, that we're not looking at a standoff at Mar-a-Lago, but Trump will turn himself in, will negotiate some sort of surrender. So you can then expect Trump to have to show up to the courthouse in lower Manhattan sometime thereafter. That's where he's booked and likely will have to take a mugshot and be fingerprinted. Now, some DAs make a point of handcuffing and doing a perp walk. It's unclear whether this would happen in this case. Obviously, the DA here already facing accusations that this is a political stunt. So handcuffing a former president more than unnecessary in this case. Following the booking, he would then be arraigned in court and then basically free uh, to go. The question, of course, is, is this all done behind the scenes? Does he have enough protesters out there that he wants to make a scene and address media that will be out there? So, Jill, a lot of things still up in the air here, but effectively an indictment then sets the clock on an appearance by Trump in lower Manhattan. Staying with politics from USA Today, President Biden issued his first veto Monday after Congress voted to block a Labor Department rule allowing retirement plans to weigh the long-term impacts of social factors and climate change on investments, a move that Republicans say is a woke policy that hurts retirees' pockets. ESG, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governments. It is an investing strategy that takes into account businesses' environmental and social risks as part of a wider financial analysis. Biden says, I just signed this veto because the legislation passed by the Congress would put at risk retirement savings of individuals across the country. They couldn't take into consideration investments that would be impacted by climate, impacted by overpaying executives. So not surprising that this piece of legislation passed the Republican-controlled House. Notable, though, that this passed the Senate. That's where Republicans, along with two Democrats, John Tester of Montana and Joe Manchin of West Virginia, notably two senators who are up for re-election in red states this cycle, joined Republicans in voting to quash this ESG rule. They say that the Labor Department should just invest on the best quality companies out there without specifically taking into consideration their environmental, social, and governance policies. Biden pushing back, though, saying that retirement plan fiduciaries should be able to consider any factor that maximizes financial returns for retirees 
across the country. He says this is not controversial. This is common sense and reflects evidence that incorporating ESG into investing policies keeps investments relevant to what's happening in the world of business and companies that consider that that you would invest in do better these days. So following a presidential veto, we should note a two-thirds majority of Congress would be needed to override a veto. But given the margins this passed by in the House and Senate, that is unlikely. So this veto, very likely to stand here. In case you're wondering, by the way, keeping count here, this was Biden's first veto. President Trump, in his four years, vetoed 10 bills, while President Obama, in his eight years, vetoed 12 bills. Overseas, this from CNN, French President Emmanuel Macron's government survived two no-confidence votes Monday in the country's parliament, clearing the way for his hugely unpopular pension reforms to be implemented and sparking even more protests in Paris. The government triggered special constitutional powers last week to push through controversial legislation that would raise the age of retirement from 62 to 64 for most workers. Lawmakers critical of the move called the no-confidence votes. They were held Monday, and they got close, but not quite enough. They did not have the sufficient votes for their side to win. So the opposition is now looking to appeal to France's Constitutional Council, that's the highest constitutional body in the country, As a way to block part or all of the law, the council would have up to a month to consider any objections to the legislation. Meanwhile, popular anger against the reforms shows no sign of ending. Protesters are gathering in central Paris following the votes clashing with police. Yeah, now is not a good time to go to France if you're looking to avoid delays or strikes. Strikes are a thing there, especially right now. And protesters are fanned out across France beyond Paris. Uh, going after this reform, and also really upset at this constitutional provision they use to force the bill through effectively their Congress. It's a tactic that critics there are saying is undemocratic. But let's back up here. This is the French president's argument on why this reform is necessary. France has one of the lowest retirement ages in the industrialized world, age 62. France also spends more than most other countries on pensions, about 14% of their total economic output. We've talked on this podcast before about how there just aren't enough young workers to afford France's very friendly pension benefits, especially since they start at age 62. It is an issue that other countries, including us here in the U.S., will be facing in the coming years and decades. France is needing to address it now as it is an urgent issue. The government there argues that the current system relying on that working population is no longer fit and France needs to join the rest of the world with a retirement age in the mid to late 60s. All right, the family of convicted killer Alec Murdoch back in the news. This time, though, it is 26-year-old Buster Murdoch, the older surviving son of Alec Murdoch, speaking out for the first time to NBC News. His statement comes after the family of Stephen Smith, who died on a road a few miles from the Murdoch house back in 2015, wants to exhume his body to aid in the investigation of the cold case. Smith was a high school classmate of Buster's. Buster says, quote, these baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I am requesting that the media immediately stop publishing these defamatory comments and rumors about me. Now, in case you haven't been following the Murdoch saga, some background here. Alec Murdoch, as we've been reporting, was convicted earlier this month of killing his wife, Maggie, and younger son, Paul, in 2021. That murder case gained national attention, and there was this Netflix documentary released in conjunction with the trial. In that documentary, several other mysterious deaths in the small town were also discussed, including that of Smith. Now, according to the Netflix documentary, rumors swirled in that small town that Buster Murdoch and his younger brother were potentially involved in Smith's death in some capacity. 
Now, no charges were brought against anyone in the family and no suspects were ever named. Yeah, it's notable because as you mentioned here, Jill, it comes just after the father has now been sent to life in prison for the murder of the wife and the son. And this is the surviving son now getting extra scrutiny. The Daily Mail has a good synopsis here. Stephen Smith was just 19 when his body was found in the middle of a road in Hampton County, South Carolina, back in July 2015. His death was ultimately ruled a hit and run, but it's a conclusion that investigators, Smith's family, and members of the local community have never believed. Along with inconsistencies in the scene and the victim's body, there's also the fact that one name repeatedly cropped up throughout the investigation, Murdoch. For almost eight years now, Stephen Smith's mother, Sandy, has been fighting to get answers about what she believes was the murder of her son. With the spotlight back on the family, back on this case, she raised $65,000 in a GoFundMe campaign, and that led them to announce the launch of an independent investigation into his death and to have her son's body exhumed here so that a private autopsy can be conducted. From the New York Post, Finland was dubbed the world's happiest nation for the sixth consecutive year in the annual World Happiness Report out Monday. This list, largely based on Gallup World poll evaluations on matters like GDP per capita, social support, healthy life expectancy, freedom, generosity, and corruption, the authors of the study wrote that the citizens of Finland's strong feelings of communal support and mutual trust were factors in helping the country navigate the pandemic and again grab the top spot. They add that Finlanders felt strongly that they were free to make their own choices and showed minimal suspicion of government corruption. Both of these factors are strong contributors to overall happiness. Denmark, Iceland, Israel, and the Netherlands rounded out the top five happiest countries in the world. So that's the top five there. Obviously, the Nordic countries dominating there in addition to Israel and the Netherlands. The U.S., meanwhile, comes in at number 15 on the world's happiest list, ahead of Germany, the U.K., France, and Costa Rica. Incidentally, it's four spots ahead of where we ranked in 2021. Of the 137 countries ranked, these are the surveys that participate in this, Afghanistan was considered the least happy nation, with Lebanon, Sierra Leone, Zimbabwe, and Congo close behind in misery there. Jill, also notable here, in the 2023 report, Russia rose 10 places to 70th happiest country in the world, and Ukraine went from 98th happiest last year to 92nd happiest this year, despite the war. I don't, I'm not sure how to interpret that. This is the 11th year of the World Happiness Report. And again, it's based on the residents of those countries' own assessment of their situation, as well as some of the data you mentioned. Sounds like total BS to me, Mosh. <laughs> well, the Finns will tell you that it's not BS to them. Jill, incidentally, I did a fellowship in Finland in the summer of 2007, and they like to talk about how stable things are and how happy they are. And Jill, we were talking about this before. I understand you're a quarter Finnish. I am Mosh, my grandma on my father's side, uh, 100% Finnish. So Jill, officially that makes you a quarter Finnish, which leads to the question, do you see the glass a quarter full? I prefer to say, Mosh, that I see it a quarter empty, which means it's three-fourths full. Jill, that's even better. <laughs> One thing that stood out to me is that in Finland, they have minimal suspicion of government corruption, which is basically the opposite of what we have here. Whether you think the Democrats are corrupt, whether you think the Republicans are corrupt, most people do not really trust the government in some capacity. And that's not good. <laughs> that's not a good thing for this country right now. Yeah, you tend to see a correlation in terms of stable democracies with 
the confidence people have in the systems, with the agencies, with the people in charge. And when you start to lose trust in the government, in the media, uh, and we've, you know, and we've talked about this before, the, the lack of trust people have in the media in this country, uh, you tend to see that that has an impact on how people feel about the country, feel about their happiness, and feel about their democracy and whether they want to participate in voting and in the democracy itself. So that is a really important thing. Interestingly, Jill, there was a separate survey last year that showed that Finland had the least amount of misinformation when they surveyed the population. So it appears they have that media situation worked out over there as well. Mosh, it's why we started this podcast and why we do this podcast. You and I were both frustrated with what we saw as misinformation and just bias in the media. And we felt that there was a real need for something like this. Just telling it like it is. This is what's going on. These are facts. Make up your own mind. So given the podcast was only around for six months in 2022, (laughs) Jill, when they do this survey next year, I do expect all of you here in the U.S. to uh, help us rank a bit higher on the happiness chart. (laughs) There was some unknown factor that we really can't figure out about why everyone in the U.S. seems so much happier. It was the launch of this one podcast. (laughs) They keep citing this podcast. All right, now time for On This Day in History on this March 21st. Most of us know about Jackie Robinson, how he broke baseball's color barrier in 1947. What many of you may not know about is how the color barrier was broken in the National Football League. On this day in 1946, the LA Rams signed Kenny Washington. Washington was the first black player to rejoin the NFL with three other players. Incidentally, there had been no black players for 13 years in the NFL dating back to 1933. It turns out that there was a player named Fritz Pollard, who was the first black player back in the NFL in 1930. But then there was effectively a gentleman's agreement within the NFL owners not to let any black players onto the teams between 1933 and 1946. That was due to controversy in certain parts of segregated America and the NFL not wanting to upset anybody. But then on this day in 46, the NFL finally reopens the doors. All right, on this day in history, 60 years ago today, Alcatraz, the U.S. prison, which had held some of the most dangerous civilian prisoners, including Al Capone and Robert Stroud, he was known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, officially closed on this day in 1963. All right, a bit of fast food news. On this day in 1962, the first Taco Bell opened in Downey, California. And a big day in social media history on this day in 2006, 17 years ago today, Twitter co-founder Jack Dorsey sent the first ever public tweet Jill, it read simply, just setting up my Twitter, but he left out the vowels. So it was just <laughs> I was wondering why you pronounce Twitter like that. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter. I know that they've increased character limits over time, but I think he probably could have spelled out Twitter, but I think he was trying to, you know, start trends and shortening things and, you know, being tight. He was cetera. trying to but, be uh, brisk. <laughs> no. It, it certainly was very brisk. <laughs> yeah, no, I... <laughs> All right, as is usual, we're going to end with a bit of music history today. 36 years ago today, U2 released their song, With or Without You, on this day in 1987. U2 gets a lot of love in On This Day. Your On This Day producer's a little biased, Jill. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, On This Day 23 years ago, we said hello to Bye Bye Bye. InSync releasing their third studio album, No Strings Attached, on this day in the year 2000. Jill, were you more Backstreet Boys or InSync back in the day? Okay, so I feel like I'm going to lose some of my 90s street cred, but I wasn't really into either of them. So more Spice Girls. <laughs> Maybe. More Dave Matthews Band, <laughs> I think. I, I just wasn't into the boys' bands. Guster, Jack Johnson, Correct. John Mayer. 
Check, check. <laughs> I like Destiny's Child. I'm trying to think what would this this is the 2000s. Yeah, I just wasn't I wasn't super into them. There were a couple years there of, of the boy bands. Uh, this is sort of peak boy band. So on this album, you had Bye Bye Bye. You had It's Gonna Be Me. It's Gonna, gonna Be, be May. May. <laughs> That's still, I, I do enjoy that meme. Which, by the way, get those memes ready, Jill. It's gonna be May very soon. We're in the late March uh, zone right now. So prepare that for the end of April there. <laughs> Incidentally, Sync would make one more album, their fourth album of the following year. And then Justin would leave and they would go their separate ways or at least attempt to. I think they're touring most of those guys still these days. I bet their show not quite as long as Taylor Swift's at three hours and 44 minutes. But let's not make this podcast that much longer. Mosh, let's wrap it up. A big thank you to everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And review us in the App Store so we can continue to grow. And don't forget to follow us over on the gram at Mosh at M-O-S-H-E-H, the Mo News Instagram account for the latest and greatest Jill, I'm on the mend, and I will see you back here tomorrow. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm glad you're alive. I'm glad you survived the night, and hopefully tomorrow you'll be feeling even better. I promise to bring more energy on March 22nd. (laughs) All right, bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast.